One of my trips was to a relatively minor military trade expo in Lisbon in 1987. I was waiting outside my hotel, the Tarim, for a taxi to take me to a venue on the outskirts of town when a well-dressed man waddled out of the hotel and stood beside me. Looking at the expo pass on my lanyard, he asked in very good English, with an Eastern European inflection, can I give you a lift? Showing his own pass, he added, I'm going to the expo. My limo will arrive soon. Frustrated at the lack of cabs, I gratefully accepted. As we settled into the plush back seats of the vehicle, I sized him up. He was portly, and his clothing looked expensively tailored. He wore a profusion of jewellery, with several rings and a thick gold bracelet on his right wrist, and what looked like a brightling watch on his left. I can only sum him up as sleazy. He volunteered, I am Laszlo Vitov. I'm a weapons broker. That must be fascinating work, I replied. I work for the Australian government. What do you do, he asked. I gave him my usual answer, defence acquisition. He boasted, anything you want to buy, I can arrange. I have many contacts in many countries. They sell me helicopters, guns, missiles, anything. Anything, I can get it. I felt a little outside my comfort zone with this revelation. So I turned the conversation to small talk. But as we stepped out of the car at the expo, he said, would you like to meet in the Turim's lounge this evening for drinks? I was reluctant to be in his company for a protracted stretch, yet he seemed like the type who might yield some useful intel. So I graciously agreed. That evening, I ordered a Portuguese Tempranillo while Vitov had a scotch and soda. So you work in acquisition, Vitov said. Are you also involved in sales? Not really, I replied. Why, why do you ask? I understand that Australia has Mirage aircraft that are no longer needed. I might have a buyer. It was true that Australian Mirages were soon to be replaced by FA-18 Hornets, and I had confidential information that Pakistan was interested in the Mirages but I was not going to reveal that. Well, sales are not really my field, I said carefully, while wondering who he had in mind as a buyer. I added, the sale might be tricky. The Australian government would not want to upset any regional balances. Much to my surprise, he replied, Pakistan is not the buyer I have in mind. He could clearly see dollars in any sale that he could arrange and eventually he revealed Yemen as a potential buyer. I was not sure I believed him on this, or for that matter, on anything. He probably distrusted me too, such as the business we were in. Before parting ways, he handed me his business card, which identified him as a broker of trade goods, with an office at an address in Belgrade. If you need any help on this matter, contact me, he said. That was the last I saw of Vitov, but his intelligence proved handy. By early 1987, I had built up quite a range of contacts in the British intelligence services, and soon these proved valuable. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading, and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. 
You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Rod Barton is a former Australian intelligence officer. Since the Gulf War, his expertise has been sought by the CIA, the Australian government and the United Nations. He is the author of The Weapons Detective, the inside story of Australia's top weapons inspector. Today I'm talking to Rod about his new book, The Life of a Spy, an education in truth, lies and power. Rod Barton, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Glad to be here. Rod, did you ever dream that your professional life would take the path it did? And and was being an intelligence officer ever your dream job? Well, it's a career you could never really anticipate. Uh, You can never really plan for it because there's so many difficulties actually getting to be an intelligence officer. So uh, although I was sort of intrigued by intelligence from a very early age, uh, I never thought that it might be a career for me. Um, And... Quite frankly, I became an intelligence officer almost by accident. uh, uh, I was recruited uh, not knowing that I was being recruited into the intelligence services. So that was fortuitous, but um, it was not something I had really planned in my life, no. And you spent quite a a large period of your life as a UN weapons inspector in Iraq. And I think a lot of people might be interested to know What does that involve exactly? What are you looking for? And what is the atmosphere as you tour a nuclear facility or a weapons facility? Yes, well, um, again, this is another career that I didn't really expect to have. My background is in microbiology and biochemistry. And when I was recruited into intelligence, I started, um, in fact, not on that at all, but on nuclear matters. And I had to train in that. Uh, they just wanted a scientist who could analyze scientific stuff. But uh, eventually I drifted more to the biological chemical side of things. After the first Gulf War in 1991, the United Nations were looking for weapons inspectors. And it was a sort of an offer you couldn't say no to really. So I, I, and I was quite happy and intrigued about what a weapons inspector would do. But when you get there, you, that is so investigative uh, and uh, analytical qualities I had as an intelligence officer that were very useful, and powers of observation as well. That, that, that's very, very important. Uh, when you're a weapons inspector, there's all sorts of little clues here and there, especially when the, Iraq, uh, the Iraqis weren't revealing everything, when they were trying to hide things. So there would be little clues here and there, like um, in one instance, there was a little pile of burnt papers outside a building, and I thought, what on earth is this? And it, it wasn't too obvious because it was at some distance from the entrance to the building. And I went to have a look and forage around. And they said, oh, that's nothing. We just That's just personnel records. But then I wandered a bit further and found in the long grass some bits that had uh, not quite burnt. They caught in the uh, conflagration and sort of went up in the air and landed down and were only burnt on the edges. And I had a look at them and they were not personnel records at all but there were specifications for equipment and this is absolutely vital uh, if you're a weapons inspector because not only did we have to destroy the weapons but we also had to destroy the equipment so uh, it's that power investigation and and power of observation and uh, also a good analytical mind that um, is uh, very useful in our work 
You also spent quite a bit of time as a weapons of mass destruction inspector, if I can put it that way. And this is post 9-11. And uh, in your book, you talk about um, a certain document called Document X, which I think you yes. prepared uh, as part of a tour in August 1991, which yes. provided evidence of that Iraq had hidden stockpiles of the biological agent anthrax. Yes. Um, and now this became part of a fairly uh, complex web of intrigue and intelligence and political intelligence uh, in the uh, ensuing years, which led to, well, the beginning of the Iraq war, I suppose, and this so-called coalition of the yes. willing. What role did that document play in the intelligence that brought that war about? Well, it was a very important document uh, because it indicated that Iraq was still withholding information from us. And I have to explain how it came about into my hands. Um, I was no longer uh, employed uh, by the Australian government at that stage. I was working as more or less as a free agent and I met up with a, um, a New York journalist uh, Judith Miller who used to write for the New York Times and uh, she'd been going through CIA stuff that had been released publicly and she came across this document and she handed it to me and said what do you make of this and uh, I have to say much to my shame, I didn't make much of it. A lot of it was all, all things we'd already knew. And so I sort of was fairly dismissive with her, much to her chagrin, because I'm sure she wanted something in the New York Times headlines the next day. Um, but I examined it a lot more closely uh, on my way back to Washington, where I was going. Uh, and I sat on the train and went through it. And then suddenly I realized that this document was quite important because of the date on it. And Clearly, whoever had uh, uh, provided this information uh, knew a lot about Iraq's biological weapons program. When you went through it, it was clear that uh, Iraq had still got uh, some uh, anthrax and uh, other agents that they hadn't declared to us. Um, now, maybe it had been destroyed along with all the other anthrax, but I didn't know that. Now, I was responsible uh, for work as um, Hans Blix, who, for Hans Blix, who was head of the inspection regime at the time, and who reported to the Security Council. And I often wrote the technical side of the reports that were going to the Security Council. And I discussed the document with Blix and, um, and the implications. And Blix, uh, after a little while of explanation of the document, understood exactly what it meant. It meant that we now had evidence that Iraq wasn't revealing everything. The problem was after 9-11, anything like this would have been dynamite. And he felt that it wasn't a good time to release it to the Security Council. We release it later, he said. Uh, I argued with him, but uh, I, I think in the end that, uh, well, obviously he was the boss and it was his decision. Um, I think it would have been better to release it early because as time moved on, it became more and more difficult uh, to release it. It looked as if we were holding back information, and we were. And eventually, of course, we did reveal the information, um, but it was revealed uh, that uh, Iraq hadn't quite come clean just prior to the 
Iraq war in 2003. So it probably was a factor uh, that had helped America uh, to say that uh, Iraq wasn't telling the truth and was still withholding weapons. And in, in a sense, that uh, misinterpretation, if I can use that term, of the assessments contained in that document uh, led to the Iraq war. How did they use that document in order to justify well, it, it wasn't just that document, of course, that the war was not just fought on one document. We were absolutely sure, as the Americans were, that the document was genuine. So there was no question of that. What was uh, uncertain is whether the extra anthrax that this uh, document implied had been destroyed or not. Iraq said that they had destroyed unilaterally all their anthrax in 1991 but we have no way of verifying that and this document was something they hadn't told us anything about where it had been stored uh, and what had uh, and what had happened to it all we had no proof of any of that it was just a different story to what they had told us so the implication of that and it was only an implication is that they weren't telling us the truth um, but whether they still had the anthrax we didn't know Blicks, my boss, said, well, there must be a strong presumption that they still are withholding this because they haven't told us about it. Um, but you could say, well, uh, no, it, it might have been destroyed as they have told us. And we certainly knew that some had been destroyed, but whether all or not, we, we, we weren't sure. You only have to look at uh, what Colin Powell, the US Secretary of State at the time, when he briefed um, the United Nations Security Council in um, March or February of uh, 2003, his whole brief was uh, covered the whole range of weapons of mass destruction from uh, biological, chemical, uh, nuclear and missiles. And he provided a lot of intelligence. But a lot of that intelligence, as it turned out, in fact, almost all of it had other explanations and it was all skewed. So um, you know, the intelligence really wasn't there, um, uh, but uh, I think convinced quite a few people that it was, and, um, and certainly convinced our government that uh, Iraq was withholding stuff. Whether that justified war or not was a different matter, but uh, the US wanted to go to war for perhaps other reasons, not just weapons of mass destruction, and so war turned out to be inevitable. It just occurs to me that it must be quite difficult to maintain a level of integrity when you're operating in that world. What, what keeps you or kept you principled during that time? <laughs> well, I guess it's, it's part of my nature, uh, really. And, uh, and it's part of the nature or should be part of the nature of any intelligence officer. You know, your job is to provide honest advice uh, based upon the facts and on the intelligence you receive. Intelligence officers, uh, analysts, receive a lot of intelligence information which they have to analyze and put together. And only they see all of this information, for obvious reasons, as massive amounts of it. And then they've got to make sense of it and say what they see. Uh, not what they believe, but what they see. And of course, there are always uncertainties, and those uncertainties should be reflected in any, in any statements and in any, report, any reports. How the politicians use it is uh, is up to them, of course, but it seems to me that uh, if politicians just ignore, uh, or if we say it's a possible situation, 
if politicians want to use it that possible as well that's certain you know they've, they've got this or got that then that that's quite wrong but it, it's very difficult for a analyst to say anything other than what uh, or should be difficult for any analyst to say other than uh, what the evidence shows what the intelligence shows and of course rod not all the conspiracies turn out to be as sinister as first thought uh, earlier in the book you relate a certain story about bipu what do you know about bipu <laughs> yes bipu uh, well again this has a parallel with uh, the uh, the later intelligence on the war for Iraq, on Iraq on WMD. This is where politics got ahead of the actual facts, and then the facts, uh, as the intelligence officers saw them, had to catch up with the politics. Uh, what happened is that uh, there were reports uh, in Indochina about the Vietnamese using biological weapons or toxins. What had happened is that um, Alexander Haig, who was then the US uh, Secretary of State, had made some comments about the Russians giving the Vietnamese various biological weapons. This was because he was trying to get deals in Europe on other matters, on missiles. <laughs> so, And he was trying to illustrate you couldn't trust the Russians. Look what they're doing in Indochina with the Vietnamese. Uh, and it was true that there were some refugees that um, were suffering from various illnesses. And uh, when the CIA started to investigate this, of course, they wanted to support what Alexander Haig had been saying. And uh, they found that uh, in certain areas, there were little yellow spots. And they analyzed those little yellow spots. And sure enough, there were so small amounts of toxins in them. And here was the evidence they were looking for. This is what they wanted to show to Alexander Haig and said, look, the Russians could have provided toxins to the Vietnamese. But when we started to investigate this, uh, we looked into, well, what was causing the illness with the refugees? And these I'm talking about uh, Cambodians and Laotians. We discovered, with the help of uh, a professor from Harvard, Matt Nesselson, that the drops were not actually... Uh, toxins, there, it was Bipu. Uh, sure enough, in some of the drops, there was a very, very tiny amount of toxin. And the reason for that is that Bipu is really uh, digested pollen. And when it's moist, of course, uh, fungi grow in it. And uh, when the fungi grow, some, some fungi produce a small amount of toxin. And so that's what the Americans were detecting. But really, what they had found is not... Uh, a, uh, a biological weapon at all, but Bipu, and it was just absurd. But even to this day, uh, some Americans uh, in the CIA uh, believe that uh, the incident was Russians supplying uh, the Vietnamese with toxins, and I, I, I just I can't understand that. I think mostly that they accepted they were wrong, but they, of course, being the CIA, they would never admit it. Rod, where would a young person start a career as, well, an intelligence officer um, or a spy, that's the colloquial term? Where would one start if you were interested in a career? Well, I guess it depends on what sort of uh, intelligence officer you're going to be. Today, uh, the preference is for someone who has actually had some experience overseas in a country. 
uh, and speaks a language, say uh, Chinese or Indonesian or, or something like that, and as an experience in a country so that you know a little bit about the culture and the way things work. Um, if you're just to, going to be an analyst, then uh, a good background is actually um, a history degree or something like that where you do analysis and uh, where you can look at a lot of data and work out the, the nonsense from the actual the real stuff and of course there's always a lot of nonsense in fact i would say uh in my intelligence career when you're analyzing stuff 90 percent of the stuff that comes in is not either relevant or if it is relevant uh it's not quite accurate and um, that's the skill of an analyst to work out exactly what you should use and what you shouldn't use and uh, and how you should use it because uh, sometimes you only have for example one source and so if the source said well you know this country is going to invade australia next week uh, do you ignore it because it's only one source or do you look for other sources and so it's, it's that sort of skill of judgment and assessment uh, that really is absolutely key the other difficulty is trying to get into the mind of the target country you know the people and how they think uh, one of the great mistakes that intelligence analysts make uh, is to what they call mirror image in other words use my own culture to interpret events i've seen in another culture and what may not make any sense to us might make perfect sense if you're from a, a different background and in a different culture so uh, it's, it's a whole range of skills. And of course, there are training courses for this. So once you get in, there's no real formula for getting in. And thank God there's not, because uh, uh, we have to take people who are going to be secure, are going to be loyal, uh, are going to be uh, not getting in just because they want to be a, a counter spy, for example. That actually leads me to my final question. It's a question you were asked as part of a job interview. What do you consider to be the most important attributes of an intelligence operative? So for any aspiring candidate, what should you say as an answer to that question? And what shouldn't you say? Well, I think uh, one of the key things is honesty. When you go for job interviews for most jobs, you tend to exaggerate your skills. And that's quite normal if you're going into the financial world or, um, or to selling shoes, for that matter. If you're going into the intelligence world, I think one of the key things is to be honest. And um, because that's exactly the skill that they would want when you're actually working, honesty and forthrightness. And uh, th that's the best advice I could give. Sounds like great advice, Rod. The education of a spy really is an education for all of us and an insight into a very interesting and intriguing world. So thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. And uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity. The Life of a Spy, An Education in Truth, Lies and Power by Rod Barton is published by Black Ink. It's available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.